Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. Brother Andrews, James Andrews, and I are going to share the class. I'll have, out of the 13 weeks, I'm going to teach seven, Lord willing. And this is, this is going to be a class about the Trinity, God the Father and God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. My emphasis is going to be on the Holy Spirit, which, about which I'm very excited. And here's a, a list of the subjects that I intend to talk about in my half of the quarter. Tonight we're going to talk about the Trinity and, and occasions in particular in Scripture, in the New Testament, where the, the reality of what I'm calling the Trinity uh, made, a, made a big difference and was important. It, it's just sort of taken for granted, and, but it's there. And so we'll talk about that tonight. The, Holy, the second is going to be the Holy Spirit is a person with a personality. And we'll talk about that in, in next week. Then we'll talk about the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. The next one is going to be speaking in tongues. The next, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The next will be about miracles. And so we'll spend uh, an evening talking about miracles and why I am convinced that they have ceased. But we'll go to the scripture and find out what it says about this. So I'm looking forward to the class and I hope you'll try to make every one. One of my favorite hymns is Holy, Holy, Holy. What you... And, and right now, can you play that in your mind? What you may not know is that that comes from Isaiah 6 and verse 3, where it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Charles. That's true. Yeah, so Isaiah is not the only place where it's used. That's right, good. In Isaiah 6, verse 3, what I'm told is that holy, holy, holy is with the emphasis, as if you would say three times, holy, 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 holy. Now, I do not know if, if what he's trying to emphasize is what we call the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, that they are three and yet one. This Isaiah 6 is used that way, and people calculate it that way. It may just be that he was emphasizing the awesome holiness of God, and so he repeats it. In the song, the first and fourth stanza, Holy, 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 ends with these words. Merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. It's kind of interesting that after you get past the the songbook with which most of us are familiar, Sacred Selections, when you get past the time that that was printed, the newer editions edited out those last words, and and the newer editions say, merciful and mighty, God over all, and blessed eternally, which is kind of interesting. I don't know why they did that exactly. Maybe... Huh? They watered it down. Well, it may be that they just thought that was too lofty a concept, I don't know, to, to just sing about. I'm not sure, but it's kind of interesting. I understand that the Mormon 
Tabernacle Choir sings that song like we do, except they, they leave out the reference to the Trinity, God in three persons, which I think is understandable because they reject the New Testament truth of Jesus being God. Trinity, God in three persons, is always going to boggle your mind. I do not think there will come a time. I mean, there will come a time, hopefully after this class, and you'll say, well, I understand some things about it. But there's never going to come a time, I do not think, until we go to the other side, that you and I will fully grasp this idea of God being in three persons. We should expect that God would be beyond our comprehension in many ways. He is our infinite creator. We are his finite creation. That which is made is never more complex than the maker. You can't put God into a manageable box. I don't suppose that you and I would want to serve one who could be easily figured out. One man said, if we were able to comprehend all the attributes of the great Jehovah, we would cease to worship him. I think there's something to that about the Trinity. So here are three fundamental things that I know about God in three persons. The first one is that God, or the Bible doesn't actually use this term Trinity. And, and we, in the Church of Christ, work very hard to say Bible things in Bible ways. That's a good practice, isn't it? We're communicating in a way that comes from the Scriptures, and there's an accountability attached to that, because if you speak where the Bible speaks, then you know, you, you're basing your, your values on the Scripture. But in this case, there's a principle taught, and we're going to talk about it, about God in three persons. What would you call that? And sometimes uh, we have used the word Godhead to depict the Trinity. Actually, the Scripture doesn't use it like that. Now, sometimes I have, I have this is manufactured too, but I've used the word Godhood, and I, I have illustrated by saying that when a, a boy reaches the age of being a man, we would say he's reached manhood. He has the qualities that make one a man. And when we reference the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit, we're talking about those who possess the attributes that make one God and thus Godhood. But there's no really easy way to do it from Scripture. I use the word Trinity because I frankly can't think of a better word to, to do it. And maybe you can. But, but I want you to hear this now. The, the word, the word the Godhead literally means possessing the attributes of God. So here's Romans 1.20. Let me read it to you. I want you to think about it this way when I, when I read it. Is this talking about God in three persons? Or is it talking about the attributes of God? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. You look at the creation of the world and you see his eternal power and Godhead. Well, that's not talking about the Trinity. That's talking about the attributes of God. So, three fundamental things I want you to know about the Trinity. The first one is, the Bible doesn't actually use this term. It's, it's, uh, it, it means three, of course, and some people have, have objected to using this word. I, I'm, I'm fine with that. I, I just um, use it because I don't know of a better word. Two, the Bible indisputably teaches 
that God is at the same time one and three. One and three persons. So here you have the testimony of God himself. Repeatedly the scriptures say that he is one true God. So here's John 17, 3. Remember, this is the prayer of Jesus. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. Now, I want you to bear in mind that Jesus is God. We'll talk about that in a minute, but it's Jesus praying, and he prays to someone. He's not praying to himself. He's praying to someone, and he prays and says that you are the only true God. Bible describes God as being one. Here's James 2.19. You believe that God is one, O-N-E. You do well. Even the devils believe and tremble. He's one. He's one. That's what it says. I love Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Listen to this. Hear, O Israel. And this is very subtle, but it's profound. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, comma, the Lord is one. O-N-E. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and with your strength. Now, it's just, it's just sort of a twist of the original words here. So when it says, the Lord our God, here, O Israel, Israel, the Lord our God, the word God is Elohim. And you're familiar with that word. You've heard that word before. But are you aware of the fact that it's plural? It's plural. It's, it's very much like, let us create man in our own image. It's plural. The Lord, our God, plural. Now follow it. The Lord is one, O-N-E. Echad. Echad is a word that refers to a combined or united one. He is our God. He is one. That is united. Let me show you where the word is used again. Here's Genesis 1 verse 5. The evening and the morning were the first day. What that means is that you had two that became one, right? They were still very different. The evening and the morning are two different times, and yet the evening and the morning, what are they? They are the day. Or what about Genesis 2.24? Talking about Adam and Eve and two becoming one flesh. Two can be one. So the second thing I want you to see is... The Bible indisputably teaches that God is both one and he is in three persons. So here is Matthew 3 and verse 16 when Jesus was baptized. He came up out of the water. Now, you you remember that this is a beautiful depiction of what I'm calling the Trinity. So you have Jesus in the water being baptized by John the Baptist. You have the Spirit descending in the form of a dove. You have the, the Father in heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. It's all three of them. And they're separate. They're distinctive beings. Number three. The Father and the Son and the Spirit each possess, all possess, the qualities that define one as God. Now, this is going to be a a principle that will take us into the quarter that All three beings bear Godhead, Godhood. They all bear the qualities 
the credentials, if you please, that define one as God. So here's Ephesians 4 and verse 6. We understand about God the Father. There is one God and Father of all who's above all and through all and in you all. Right? He's God the Father. Here's Jesus. Jesus was called God. In John 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Without him was nothing made that was made. That that terminology sounds sort of clumsy. Why would he say it like that? And It's because the emphasis is on the fact that he is separate and yet they are one. Jesus is God. John references him as essential in creation. All things were made by him and nothing was made that... It was all made by him and he is God. Now, what about the Spirit? Where would you go to, to, to demonstrate that the, the Holy Spirit is God? That's true. The Holy Spirit... And those apostles didn't have to be taught it or reminded of it because the Holy Spirit gave it to them. That's right. But where, where does the Bible teach that the Holy Spirit, where, where does it call him God? Acts 5. Acts 5 is right. All right. Ananias, who's the husband of Sapphira, and Peter says when he confronts him with his lie, Ananias with his lie, he says, you haven't lied unto men, you've lied unto God. But in the context, it's clear that Peter's referring to the Holy Spirit. All right, so there's no question, it's indisputable that the Scripture teaches that God is one. It also teaches that God is in three persons. Now, there are some views of the... Anybody want to make a comment here? Just interrupt me. There's some views of, of the Trinity that cannot be right, Islam struggles with this. You, you, you uh, ever see an Islamist on, on television and he's holding up one finger? You ever see that? Just, just pay attention to it next time. And It's very common to see them holding up one finger. You know what that means? It's talking about what we're talking about tonight. It's a rejection of Trinity. It is to say there's not God in three persons. There's only the Father and that all else was created by him. There's another theory called modelism, M-O-D-A-L-I-S-M. And, and it's, it's the notion that, that the way this works is that God in three persons means that he can take different forms. All right? Toss that around in your mind. Will that work? In other words, sometimes God is the Father, sometimes he's the Son, sometimes he's the Spirit. Is that good? What's wrong with that? Excellent. You know, it sounds like, I think it sounds sort of plausible when you first hear it, but it isn't because, as you're saying, at the baptism of Jesus, you have all three presented simultaneously. What about Jesus praying? Was he praying to himself? Was one form of God praying to another form of God? That can't be right. 
Modelism has to deny that they were present, that all three were present at the baptism. Uh, sometimes, sometimes people will say that God in three persons is like water. The way you illustrate it is that water can come in three forms, solid, liquid, and, ga- and gas. That's, that's modelism. The problem with that is that those three things are, they're all three water, but they're, they're water independent from one another. It's not water in three persons. It's water in three forms. But they can't be all three at once. That's true. Mm-hmm. Yes. And when you were baptized, you were baptized, Matthew 28 says, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You were baptized as much in the name of the Father as you were in the name of Christ. You were baptized in the name of the Spirit as much as you were in the name of God, the Father. Just, just say this in your heart. There are three persons who make up one God. Sometimes people try to illustrate it with the egg, the Trinity with the egg. You have three elements, the yolk, the white, and the shell, yet they make up one egg. The weakness of that illustration is to be consistent with Trinity, all three would have to be independently described as an egg. In the Trinity, all three are called God in Scripture. All three are God, independent of the others. They're all three. They all three bear the qualities that make one God. All right. The, the balance of our lesson is going to be this. I'm going to give you six concepts, moments in history, in biblical history, that are enhanced by the reality of the Trinity. That is where the writer would use the reality of Trinity to make the point. The first one's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and this has to do with the head coverings. And you remember that that you had um, these miraculous meetings, you had these prophesying times, and we're not going to talk about the head covering tonight except to make this observation. In that context, Paul wants to emphasize that the man leads the woman in the home, and that that was demonstrated by the wearing of the head covering. And so here's 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3. And he doesn't just say, now let me tell you, this is about a husband and a wife. What he does is to say, this is very much like God and Jesus. Ready? But I want you to know, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3, that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man. The head of Christ is God. Now what does that illustrate? I believe it illustrates this. Which, which, is, which is more God, the Father or the Son? Philippians 2 says that that Jesus didn't think it robbery to be equal with God. He didn't have to steal it or take it. It was already his. He was God. He is our creator. He is, the word was with God and the word was God. And so the answer is there's an equality there. The same is true in the home, in the marriage, in, in reference to God the Father and God the Son, they They took different roles in redemption, didn't they? And and Jesus is presented clearly in submission to his Father, yet he is God. Now, boy, we just stepped over into some deep waters. I don't understand everything about that. But I do understand that it's true. I also understand that in a marriage, 
the value of a husband is not greater than the value of a wife, right? They obey the same gospel. They're saved with the same cross. They anticipate exactly the same blessings in heaven. Which one is more valuable? You can't answer that question. They're equal. They're not, it's not that one is more valuable. Yet, and yet, in the home, they take different roles. You have to have a leader in the home. And part of creation, in the way that God designed men, is, is that he made them to be the leaders of the home. Now, a lot of people push against that, of course. Uh, the very idea that somebody would even say that today, I think, gives some folks the heebie-jeebies. But I tell you what, you try to build a home without it. You, you, you try to build a home where you have what C.S. Lewis would describe as co-equal leaders. And then you come to a major decision that must be made, and the two parties disagree. What happens, you come to, what you, what happens is you come to an impasse, and the thing blows up. You have to have somebody who has the deciding vote. And so here's an illustration in 1 Corinthians 11 where, where Paul uses the Trinity, the Father and the Son, to illustrate the point about the head coverings and that, that you have, even though Jesus is God, he plays the role of being submissive to the Father and how important that is. Without the Trinity, this illustration could not exist. Here's the second one. This one goes to Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, and you'll, you'll remember that's, this is the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, I want you to think about how important it was in the mind of a Jewish man to grasp that Christianity, Christ's church, uh, was different from the law of Moses. And as, as a matter of fact, that, that you have to have a law change. No more are we amenable to what the prophets said. No more are we responsible for the Ten Commandments or, or the old law of Moses in its entirety in the Pentateuch. No more of that. The only time that you're responsible to obey the principles of the Old Testament is when they're brought over into the New because we are New Testament Christians. Now, the matter of transfiguration is a dramatic illustration of that point or expression of that point. So here's verse 5. While he was still speaking, Peter was talking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. This voice from heaven declared to everybody who was standing there, and and all of us who would read this passage from now on, that this one standing there with Moses and Elias was the chief holder of the truths. He's above the old law. He's above Moses. He's above the prophets. Without the Trinity, this illustration, this, this de- declaration could not have been made. It was made because you have God the Son here on earth. You have God the Father speaking from heaven. Same is true in the baptism in Matthew 3. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Couldn't happen except that you have God in three persons. And so you have the Holy Spirit reaching and grabbing this principle or this example of the Man of Transfiguration, and says, look here, look here, this is how you learn. It's just a huge memory, a huge moment in history when God spoke from heaven about the new law and the Christ. Uh, God was so 
serious about this and about the fact that he had declared it plainly enough. I mean, not just with the Mount of Transfiguration, but that he, he had let people know well enough about this, that Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4, a man who holds on to that old law of Moses instead of the law of Christ has fallen from grace, can't be saved. You cannot be saved. Number three, what about the Garden of Gethsemane? We're talking about examples where the Trinity, the principle, the reality of God in three persons was a significant difference or made a difference in, in declaring something or illustrating something. Wow, this, is, this one's um, Matthew 26, beginning in 37. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Y'all bear in mind that this wasn't merely a a normal form of dying like you and I will do. Isaiah 53.6 says that God was about to lay on him the iniquity of us all. And so that has to be factored in here. And, and here he begins to pray. Now he's going to pray this prayer three different times. Here's verse 42 of the same chapter, Matthew 26. Again, a second time he went away and prayed, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Verse 44. So he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Now, Luke 23 and verse 43 says that God sent then an angel to care for Jesus. He didn't remove this this cup of suffering from him because redemption couldn't be had without it. And Jesus knew that. And then you have this, uh, this dispatch of Romans and Jews, the police, from those two groups and they come to arrest Jesus, and you have Peter counting, uh, cutting off the ear of Malchus. When I picture that in my mind when I'm eating the Lord's Supper, I picture a ruckus. I can't, I can't think of how the, the, that Peter pulling out the sword and cutting off Malchus' ear could be isolated. It's not like, how y'all doing? Fine. That can't be right. There must have been a ruckus. There must have been some shouting. There must have been some push and shove, and then I can picture it. Then I can see how that Peter might have done this. What did Jesus, how did Jesus respond to Peter? And the answer is, he said, put your sword up. Everybody who takes the sword will perish by the sword. And besides that, don't you know that I could call more than 12 legions of angels? Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. Um, I mean, uh, uh, just a few minutes ago, you have Jesus in the garden, and he's praying, let this cup pass from me. And now, and this is very little time later, just moments later, he's, he's there, and he's facing uh, these, this mob of, I don't know, police, if you please. And, and you have the ruckus, and Jesus says, put up your sword. Um, th- this, is, this is something I choose to do. I don't need you, Peter to defend me. I don't need you. Thanks, but no thanks. 
I have 12 legions of angels waiting to come and rescue me. All I have to do is say, now, now, fellas, now. But I'm not going to do it. Now, hold on a minute. Now, so, so what made the difference? What do you have between Jesus praying, Father, please, three times, let this cup pass from me, and then him saying, put up your sword because i got 12 angels that are waiting on my word, 12 legions of angels. So, so what's in between? The answer is praying to God the Father. Without the reality of Trinity, God in three persons, without there being three persons, to whom could Jesus have prayed? Without prayer, could he have been sustained through this? However, Jesus, however you figured that Jesus was blessed, but the answer to this prayer is a benefit of the reality of the Trinity. Because God is in three persons. Heaven's throne stayed intact while the cross was going on. We never think about this because it didn't happen without the Trinity. The Trinity was there. Now, one more thing about this. He prayed three times. I I have the authority to, to order 12 legions of angels. This is a this is a brilliant illustration of God, of Jesus being fully God. He didn't, he wasn't forced to give up the fact that he is God in order to fill this role. I've I've got the authority to call the angels to come and save me, and they will do that now. He had that authority. What he did was by choice. He prayed to his father for strength, and, and as you and I pray for strength. But he had all the authority. He made that choice. He voluntarily took the servant role with the Father and prayed to him for strength to do what he knew had to be done. Number four. Anybody, just just comment if you want to or jump in any time. The efficacy of the cross. This is number four. And Jesus is the Son of God. Meaning, in part, that he is God himself. And if you wonder about that, just remember Colossians 2 and verse 9. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Is that something? It's talking about your Savior. It's talking about your Lord. All the fullness of the Godhead bodily. is. Well, that's the Godhead. And remember, it's, it's actually not the Trinity. It's not. I mean, in the New Testament, the Greek word literally means one who possesses the attributes of God. And in Jesus, Jesus has all those attributes bodily. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So Jesus, being God, is uniquely qualified to be the means by which you and I can be saved. He has the, the ability, the authority, to justify sinners like you and me. So we sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, because he's God. If it was just a man, mind you, if he was just a man, dying on the cross wouldn't do us a snap of good, would it? The fact that he is God. So Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 9 says that Jesus is the author of eternal salvation to all them that believe him. That's big. Is he God? Is Jesus God? Yes. And Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 says, 
Inasmuch then as the children, us, you and me, are partakers of flesh and blood, he himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that has the power of death, even, even the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all the lifetime subject to bondage. Yet put Jesus on the cross, put God in the body of a man and crucify him on a cross. And what happens to the governing of the universe? Remember Acts 17, talking about the Father? In him we live and move and have our very being. And yet, that's not in question, of course. Jesus is crucified on that cross, but God the Father never left his throne. Heaven's throne stayed intact while the payment of sin was going on. Do you have something, Charles? Exactly. That's it, exactly. Right. He humbled himself as a man. Yes, and he, and he had choice too. And he, uh, that's exactly it. Okay, so the point again is the, the efficacy of the cross, the, the strength of the cross is because he is God and yet hanging him on that tree did not affect the fact that the world kept going on. Five. Because of the Trinity, God could come to earth and be, become a mediator. He had to come to earth. Without being a separate person, he couldn't have done what he did on earth. He became both man and God. A mediator required coming to the earth and coming required taking a different posture than what he had been used to for all eternity. Now he was a man, God. Though he was a son, Hebrews 5a, learned the obedience by the things he suffered, being made perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Again, though, the throne stays intact while God the Son was experiencing earthly life in a human body. Here's number six, and the last one. People who become Christians are adopted into a pre-existing, loving family. God didn't just create us so he could have someone to rule. And before he created the world, he, has, he was loving the Son. You could extrapolate that, that he was loving the Spirit. But here's John 17, verse 20. Remember the prayer of Jesus? I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Are there two persons in the Father and the Son? Yeah, the Father sent the Son. That's what Jesus said. And the glory which you gave me, I've given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them. I think, I think the best, maybe the best illustration for three becoming one, one three all possessing the attributes of God, and yet there's one God. <clears throat> Perhaps, and I don't know, this is a human illustration, but what about marriage? 
what about, what about marriage? So um, Don's nodding his head. Don and Carol got married. Two people, yet one, right? And, and, and clearly, you could say two separate people, yet clearly one. Now that seems paradoxical, doesn't it? I mean, it, does, it seems contradictory on its face that they are two and yet they are one, but everybody in this room understands that. Everybody does. We got that. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one, just as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. People who become Christians are adopted into a pre-existing and loving family. John 15, 9, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. All right then. So we're going to be talking about all three persons in in this next quarter. In the first several weeks, the primary focus is going to be on the Holy Spirit, who is the least understood, I think, person in the Godhead, in the Trinity, uh, probably the least understood one. Maybe, maybe one of the more popular ones in some, among some people, but uh, I want us to know more about him, and we're going to examine these important specific points during the, the quarter. And I thank you for being here, and God bless you, and we'll start our devotional in just a few minutes. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word, brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at colley at westhuntsville.org.